0: The EY Ireland CEO Outlook Report is out now. Search EY.com slash IE slash CEO and discover the key topics on the minds of Ireland's leading CEOs. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'm looking at the EU's plan to reduce gas output amid concerns that Vladimir Putin could cut off supply to the West from Russia's pipelines. I'll be joined in a few moments by our Europe correspondent Naomi O'Leary and by Barry O'Halloran for that segment. Barry will stay with the podcast for part two where we'll discuss the latest news from Irish aviation. This week Ryanair reported a first quarter profit of €170 million while Aer Lingus, the DAA and some baggage handling groups were in front of an Oireachtas transport committee to explain why so many pieces of luggage are going missing at Dublin airport. But first to gas and the EU's plan to reduce output by 15% to counter any move by Russia to crimp supply to member states this winter in retaliation for sanctions imposed due to its invasion of Ukraine. Our Brussels-based correspondent Naomi O'Leary and business reporter Barry O'Hallon joined me for this segment. I began by asking Naomi to outline the EU's plan and to explain how Ireland managed to get a derogation to the 15% cut expected of member states.
1: So if an alert of gas shortage is triggered for the EU as a whole, um, Ireland along with Cyprus and Malta, won't have to obligatorily, mandatorily reduce its gas use by 15%, whereas that will apply to the other EU states. And the reason for this decision to carve out or give an exemption to the island states is because they aren't connected to the general EU grid. So it means even if they started slashing their gas use, it wouldn't mean that that unused gas could be sent to other EU states. So... It would be a bit pointless. <laughs> um, so they got an exemption. Um, they will be exempted from these mandatory measures um, if they come into a force. Nevertheless, the Irish government has said it will still voluntarily seek to reduce gas use because gas is extremely expensive. And the more we can find alternatives to it, the better it is for households and for businesses. That's the rationale. Also, if everybody reduces the demand for gas, that should also bring down prices. Uh, So I asked yesterday um, Minister Eamon Ryan, what did that mean then? What would change as a result of this agreement? And he told me there wouldn't be any new measures. Ireland would just go ahead and sort of double down on existing plans. uh, Things like heat pumps, solar panels, efficiency measures, home insulation, um, initiatives like that. And there will also be like an information campaign encouraging people to reduce use where they can.
0: All right. But I mean, all of that stuff takes time, doesn't it? If you're going to put in a heat pump, if you're going to put in a solar panel, it all costs money. Obviously, we're in the midst of um, a major cost of living crisis, not just in Ireland, but across Europe as well. So, I mean, if the weather is cold, people are going to just turn on their, their heating, aren't they? Um, an information campaign isn't really going to change very much, is it?
1: It's really a race to get prepared for this winter. Currently, people aren't really using the heating so much because it's summer, obviously. Um, But if demand spikes uh, excessively this winter, the concern is that there may not be enough gas. That's the reason for planning these reductions. Um, So there's a plan in place to sort of uh, prepare for that, I suppose, which has a number of different aspects. One is that various EU countries are trying to refill storage capacity. Ireland doesn't have storage capacity, but some EU countries do. Um, And they're trying to do that so that they have enough gas in any case to get through the winter, with the big question being whether Russia will decide to cut off the gas supply entirely. The European Commission warned yesterday that this could really happen at any moment. um, And that was sort of um, reiterated by the fact that the Russian state-owned gas company Gazprom reduced, half its flow through the crucial Nord Stream 1 pipeline to just 20% under uh, a rationale of there being some technical reason for it. But it's widely seen uh, by EU countries as uh, just geopolitical strong-arming, a way to pressure EU countries to stop their support for Ukraine. Uh, So it's an attempt to prepare for that eventuality, that there may not be enough gas this winter, um, and to Get alternatives in place where they're available and to let people know that this is going to be an issue. Ireland isn't the only country to get some sort of an exemption or derogation from this Um, so there's the automatic ones for Ireland, Cyprus and Malta. There's also sort of contingency ones which various countries can apply for. So for example the Baltic states are still technically connected to Russia's electricity grid. If Russia decided to cut them off then they would need gas in order to just have any electricity. So if that happens in that eventuality, they can also ask for an opt-out for having to reduce gas use because they might need it just to keep the lights on. Um, in addition, there's some sort of industry-specific opt-outs, like if gas is used as a feedstock or an essential e- element in industry, then you can ask for that to be deducted from your target Um and also, if your country is at risk of having an electricity crisis, so not having electricity due to a shortage of gas, you can also ask for an opt-out. With all of these derogations, um, there's been some discussion as to whether the whole plan will succeed in reaching the reduction of 15% for the entire EU that the initial plan laid out for the by the European Commission aimed for. Um, There's some calculations that suggest that with all these derogations, it may only amount to 10%, which would still leave a potential gap if uh, gas supplies are cut off. So that's why there's uh, a lot of sort of emphasis now on the need to reduce and save wherever possible to ensure that, I suppose, if you plan to use less, it means that you don't end up forced to have to use less in an emergency scenario of a shortage later on.
0: Barry Halloran, you've been covering the Irish energy market now for a number of years. Where does Ireland uh, currently get its gas from?
2: Short answer is most of it comes from Europe. Um, 25% of the gas that we use comes from the Carib field off the west coast, off Mayo. um, And 75% of it is imported via via a pipeline that runs uh, through Scotland from the North Sea. So some of, some of that comes from the UK, some of it comes from Norway, some of it comes from of various supply points uh, in and around Western and Nor- Western Europe. Uh, so, so around three quarters of it is, is, is imported and it's from Britain and
0: Europe. And there has been some talk, hasn't there, that the UK might, um, might close off supplies to continental Europe. Um, how, would that impact on us?
2: No, but it would impact us if the UK were to, to close off supplies to us um that, that would make life very difficult uh indeed, I would have thought. Now there there is some debate as to if they can do this and whether they will do this. Um because the pipeline running from uh Scotland also supplies Northern Ireland, which we know is part of the United Kingdom jurisdiction, and it also supplies the Isle of Man. And people have pointed out to me, well, if they if the UK were to cut off the, the Western flow of gas, if you like uh, via the Moffat pipeline, it would be cutting off parts of its own jurisdiction and therefore it's not going to do that. And others have said, well, actually, it should be possible for them to retain connections with the North and with the Isle of Man and limit the flow through to the Republic. It, the, the, it's, as with a lot of these things, it's never entirely clear. Um, but it does. the balance does seem to favour that gas could well keep flowing through that pipeline. But you've got to remember... If there's a shortage in Europe, there's a shortage in Europe. And we are drawing supplies from a European pool. So I, I'm, what nobody in government seems capable of doing or seems willing to do is to explain to me uh, how precisely we're going to avoid the necessity to ration gas if there is a shortage, and if that shortage occurs in the, the manner that Naomi's just outlined very clearly. And clearly, from listening to Naomi, it's, it's pretty clear that there is a real risk to gas supplies in Europe this winter. I don't understand how that doesn't affect us.
0: Naomi, I don't know if you have any uh, sense of, of that. Do you know what the position is in terms of the UK and, and the flow of gas between the UK and Europe? the uk and the eu i should say
1: my understanding is that at present uh, the uk is a supplier to the eu so most of the gas is going uh, there is a there is a connection from the uk to the european continent as they were but most of the flow is going from the uk to the european continent as opposed to the other way around at the moment um my understanding of the connections is that it's a mix of north sea gas and also gas that comes from norway um i i totally see what's said there about there n- there's Nevertheless, a European pot of gas supplies, and in case of a shortage, it may be a scramble for those. And um, you would expect um, Ireland, you know, due to the, due to the fact of our connection to Norway and to gas uh, supplies that will be sought by other European countries as well, to be affected by that in a scenario like that. Um, so uh, I think yeah, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't think that we're exempt from this situation, even if we did get an exemption from a manda- a potential future mandatory obligation to reduce our use by 15%. Ireland is small enough in the grand scheme of things that our 15% wouldn't make a huge difference anyway, which is probably why it wasn't too much of a difficulty to get that exemption agreed for Ireland, Cyprus and Malta. Um, but yeah, I think in the round, I mean, the big picture that we need to look at, which is sort of apart from exemptions derogations and negotiations and so on the EU just agreed to in principle reduce its gas use by 15% and they agreed that in the space of one week so it was it was it was first proposed one week ago caused quite a lot of alarm nevertheless was agreed 7 days later and that reflects the reality that there is widespread expectation that Russia will cut off gas supplies Continue to use gas supplies as um, a, a geopolitical weapon or a weapon of war of wars, which is what um, Minister Eamon Ryan called it yesterday. Um, so that's the sort of harsh reality of Europe's energy situation, and it has knock-on effects beyond the price of gas and beyond shortages and so on much of the industrial heartlands of Europe run on gas. It's not just that gas is used to make electricity, but it's actually directly used as a fuel in factories, for example, in Europe, throughout Central and Eastern Europe. And this is pipeline gas that's coming directly from Russia's gas fields. If it's cut off, then you could have a potential industrial crunch. So those factories not being able to run anymore, layoffs. And if we're talking about Germany, I mean, this is... You know, the manufacturing heartlands of Europe, something like that would have a massive economic impact well beyond Germany, including to Ireland, because we're part of this single market. So the bigger picture is an enormous economic risk because of the very embedded role that gas has has in our economies, which was built up over decades in what now seems like a pretty foolish policy.
0: Yeah, sure. Extraordinary times, all right, and unprecedented measures been taken to um, to try and solve this problem. Barry, can you just explain to us what percentage of our energy needs, if you like, is derived by uh, is driven by gas, and how much by renewables uh, and so forth?
2: Okay, in and around half, or slightly more than half of uh, all electricity we consume um, is uh, comes from burning gas, and that's a pretty consistent figure. We've got it down quite considerably, but uh, I don't see it going down below that anytime soon. The rest is a mixture of coal, fuel oil, uh, solar and wind power. Um, and solar and wind power are probably the, the the bigger chunks of that, but obviously they're intermittent. You can't rely on them. You don't know what, what speed the wind will be blowing at next November or next January when you know we're all freezing to death. Um, so... And um, the, the, the bottom line is gas is the, the thing that anchors the system. And the other point is that, just as Namie point, uh, point explained there, a lot of industries also use gas. And you're talking about industries, including the, the pharmaceutical business, which is a very important employer and a massively important exporter uh, of goods from this country. And they rely very heavily on natural gas as well.
0: And what's our plan to wean ourselves off uh fossil fuels um not just because uh, of the the Russian issue but also because it's good for uh, the planet?
2: Well, we we have a plan to to boost wind power. Um, we're going to have uh 5000 gigawatts put that in to put that in uh context. That's I, I don't know, the average gas plant burns 400 megawatts, so you 're looking at i think twenty five the equivalent of twenty five thirty power plants in the irish sea uh, th- that 's worth of wind now um but that 's not going to happen that 's not really going to start kicking in until the end of the decade uh, The plans are being drawn up now a lot of those are a lot of those people are going into the to a very long and complicated planning permission process to build uh, those wind farms they will ultimately be built or many of them will ultimately be built but um you know, they're not, they're not going to be working anytime soon. In the interim, we have enough renewable power to 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 provide around 40%, maybe a little bit more now, of our electricity. Um, so there isn't an immediate plan to wean ourselves off gas. In fact, we have to build more gas-fired plants to ensure that we can make the transition to a largely renewable future. Um, and not only that, Eamon Ryan, the Minister for Energy, said earlier this year, and late last year, on several occasions, that building new national gas-fired power plants was a national priority.
0: Yeah, uh, but I'm just wondering: does this bring um, fracking back into back into play, and possibly even as a, a short-term measure?
2: Well, there's there's only one site I understand where fracking might be possible in this country, and it's 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 up around Le- Leitrim, and somebody had plans for that and and dropped it and walked away because the reserve was so small and the expensive of the project, um, it, it, I think it just put that organization off. Um, the place where fracking is most commonly used, the places where fracking are most commonly used uh, are the United States and Russia. Um, so I suppose if you have the US supplying fracked gas into the European network via LNG, then yeah, you are using fracking or you are using fracked gas. but like it still takes a long time to establish a fracking plant, and um, the, the we're talking about ten-year solutions to a problem that is going to be upon us in ten weeks. So I don't really see how any of those are going to work.
0: Naomi, what's the political dynamic around this? It doesn't look as if the uh, war in Ukraine is going to end any time soon. There must be real fears um, that the Russians, as you say, will politicize this and and cut off supplies um, to Europe in the winter.
1: Yeah, long term, we are seeing a detachment or um, unpicking of economic and energy ties with Russia um, between um, you know, Russia and the rest of Europe. That's having massive consequences, it has consequences both for the EU economy, also for Russia. Um, I don't detect that there's a change of mind in terms of the position on Ukraine. Um, I think that the idea of... Uh, ignoring all international law and breaching the sovereignty of another country, um, you know, standing against that as a on principle is something that remains incredibly important um, to European Union countries, not least because of the history of the Union, which was established as a way to stop war and to stop um, the violent attempts to change borders uh, that caused so much bloodshed throughout European history. Um, so I think that that, that stands. um What we have seen, though, is that the conversation has changed to concerns about how to manage the massive economic uh, sort of results or consequences from this conflict and manage it in a way that uh, that sort of allows European governments to maintain that policy. So there is concern about um, public opinion you know, whether you could have significant volatility if people are experiencing economic hardship. Um, and there's a there's a concern about that and you know how to manage this potential economic turbulence. The dominant uh, how you do, like the dominant characterization of the EU and its economy at the moment is uncertainty in terms of people don't know how this is going to go. Um, and uh, yeah, so predictions would be a fool's game.
0: Yeah, sure. And I'm just wondering, it's obviously wreaking havoc with uh, climate change targets because presumably, um, you know, let's say countries like Germany are going to have to uh, rely on coal for probably longer than they, they would have uh, wanted to, or, or, you know, alternative sources of fuel are going to have to uh, come in from somewhere until we get to a point where renewables can can replace gas. And presumably that will uh, impact on the climate change targets that have been set out for 2030.
1: There's something of an irony here because all of what we're talking about, we're talking about 10-year plans for a problem that, you know, we need to address in 10 weeks. It's all proved that, you know, action should have been taken sooner. Um, you know, it's proved that the reliance on Russian gas was foolish for more than one reason. Um, and we would all be better if we had renewable energy that, you know, wasn't uh, subject to uh, geopolitical whims. Um, and had more security that way. So all, all of the sort of the rationale of the climate transition has been proved in a very concrete way. Yet at the same time, th- we now are, pr- are confronted with these very short term uh, demands and shortages, which are requiring um, some, you know, kind of quick and dirty solutions, including uh, putting back uh, the burning of coal and so on in some uh, power plants and just scrambling around for energy supplies wherever they can be found to sort of get over, you know, this short-term crunch. Um, so, I mean, uh, what you hear from um, the European Commission certainly is that, you know, these climate targets are not shifting, you know, that this sort of, the, the argument has been proved and it all needs to be part of the transition. But in reality, um, I think you can only fight so many fronts. And the, the reality is that we're now, currently going on is a lot of discussions, um, including in Brussels, about how or whether uh, climate targets in agriculture will be tweaked, partly because of the potential food crisis. Um, so it's kind of bad news all around because it means that there will be more problems down the line because, you know, the, the situation in terms of climate, biodiversity, crisis and so on, uh, was already in a dire situation that was requiring address. Um, and, you know, the, the risk is that those... The, the actions that were planned to address that problem may be pushed further out because of the need to fix a more short-term, short-term one.
0: All right. Uh, I suppose all we can hope for is a, a mild winter. Uh, perhaps Naomi O'Leary and Barry O'Halloran, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Barry O'Halloran about Ryanair's Q1 results and missing luggage at Dublin Airport. Back in a few moments.
2: With increasing
0: pressures... Ireland CEOs are working hard to navigate the rapidly evolving business landscape. The EY Ireland CEO Outlook Report takes a deeper dive into the topics that are on the minds of Irish CEOs at the moment, and importantly, the issues that leaders should be paying attention to. Discover the key actions to consider as you seek to reshape the future of your organization at ey.com/ie/ceo. Welcome back, this is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. On Monday, Ryanair published its Q1 results, showing it was back in profit amid a strong rebound in passenger demand. On Tuesday, Aer Lingus, the DEA and some baggage handling groups were in front of the Oroctus Transport Committee to explain why more than 4,000 pieces of luggage at Dublin Airport are still waiting to be reunited with their owners. I began by asking Barry to go through Ryanair's headline numbers for Q1.
2: I thought they were good. Not unexpectedly so, given the kind of tenor of Michael O'Leary's remarks in May when they released their full year results, but I think it was a good strong start to the quarter. They're obviously heading into the a, a busier three-month period, ending in sep- on September 30th, and by all accounts, that quarter is also performing extremely well. They are a good deal more wary about what happens in the winter months, but I kind of felt reading between the, lo- the lines of some of Michael O'Leary's remarks uh, to analysts later on, on Monday, that they're probably quietly confident about what happens in the winter, assuming that there is no further COVID surges and that the Ukrainian conflict um, remains sort of contained or that there, that it, it, it doesn't affect people's mood uh, to fly anymore.
0: Yeah, now we're talking about the three months uh, of its first quarter of its financial year. So That's essentially the period from April to June. It made €170 million profit in that period, having made a big loss uh, 12 months earlier, not surprisingly, because of COVID restrictions. Uh, One of the interesting figures was that it flew 45.5 million passengers in that three-month period. That was five times more than a year ago. Again, no surprise because of the COVID restrictions. But it was also ahead of the 2019 uh, number, which is perhaps a better comparison.
2: Yeah, it flew 42 million in the it, during the same period in 2019. So that was an increase of 9%. And um, that's pretty much the direction that the figures have been tracking, really, I think, since the beginning of the year. Uh, they've increased their capacity by 15% over pre-COVID. In other words, they have uh, 115 seats where they previously had 100 seats, if you like. So, it seems to me that they're filling those extra seats pretty quickly. That nine percent increase would tell you that, um, and I think that probably bodes well for the profit that they're going to make during the summer, at the very least.
0: Did Michael O'Huitt talk about the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on bookings across Europe? Because obviously Ryanair, not just flying out of Ireland, now for many many years they've been flying right across uh, Europe. Yeah. Overall,
2: the the, the invasion in Ukraine. It slowed bookings for Easter particularly, he said, and they reckon it cut fares by around 4%. Uh, in other words, that, that there was a little bit of momentum uh, ahead of the invasion, which happened at the end of February. But once that happened, people suddenly became very, very cautious again about flying. That slowed things down in Easter, which is a kind of a key period for airlines because it's the first real holiday period of the year for most of them. And, but then subsequently, things started to take off again. And certainly coming into the summer, uh, booking strengthened. And they appear to be strong right now. And they were certainly strong in the quarter that we're discussing about.
0: Now, he won't have increased airfares. uh, Perhaps no surprise given the inflationary environment. And anybody who's travelled by air uh, in the last uh, few months will, you know, I think uh, if you compare it to 2019, you're paying more for your airfares now than, than you were back then, I would suggest. But he's saying that airfares are going to continue to rise. Why so?
2: There are two things going on here. First of all, there's the obvious High fuel cost. And second, there is the fact that some airlines may not be able to cope with that rising cost and thus far haven't been able to cope with some of the operational issues across air travel that we've we've all heard about. So some of them are going to cut capacity. Michael O'Leary's argument is that capacity is unlikely to come back, or at least not very quickly. Uh, that means fewer seats with higher costs therefore that is going to start pushing airfares up. This is not a million miles away from remarks he made to the FT about a month, maybe a month and a half ago, where he was saying that at at some level, airfares look unrealistically low, given the kind of economic picture and given what's been happening with airlines and capacity around Europe. So I, I suppose those remarks weren't terribly surprising. But I mean, I think if you're if you're planning to fly any time in the second half of the year, maybe start booking, maybe start looking for flights now
0: rather than waiting a little closer to the day because you will probably get a better deal. Now, another headwind facing Ryanair is around pay and it's been having some issues with uh, staff in various parts of Europe uh, around pay. Uh, and in Ireland, um, the pilots have yet uh, to agree a pay restoration deal with Ryanair. What's the latest on that?
2: Okay, the latest on that is this This isn't so much a dispute as a difference of approach, I think. Um, the Pilots Union, Forza IALPA, wants the issue to go to the Workplace Relations Commission. Ryanair's position is that they've no problem with third-party uh, intervention, if you like, or they've no problem with going to third parties, but... They want to exhaust the local negotiations first, and their argument is that those local negotiations have not been exhausted. Now, I understand that the pair are due to meet sometime early next month, so probably next week or maybe the week after. And I, I suspect myself, and this is just really my opinion or my, my view of it, is that they may well decide to sit down and, and just continue the talks and, and, and start hammering out a deal.
0: Okay, and is there, I mean, for Irish uh, passengers who've maybe booked with Ryanair, is there any potential here for disruption uh, to their flights, for their flights being cancelled?
2: No, I wouldn't have said so, not in the immediate future. I mean, before anyone picks up placards and hits the picket line, there is a whole series of procedures to go through. And we're a very, very long way away from that.
0: Okay, now moving on, on Tuesday, the Oireachtas uh, Transport Committee, even though the Oireachtas is effectively in recess, for the summer, but the Aroctus Transport Committee met, uh, and they had Erlingus, uh, some of the baggage handlers, and DAA in front of them to discuss what's going on at Dublin Airport in terms of missing bags, and some extraordinary numbers out of this: uh, Barry, um, four thousand two hundred mislaid or missing bags a- at the minute, uh, as a result of uh, various issues going on. Um, uh, just take us through the numbers, and uh, maybe let's start with Erlingus.
2: Okay, Aer Lingus is dealing with uh, 1,200 missing bags, I suppose missing bag reports, if you like, uh, across its network. Now, the bags are repatriated via Dublin, or at least that the, the repatriation or the return of bags is handled uh, through Dublin. But that doesn't mean that the 1,200 bags are all sitting in Dublin Airport. They could be in various places. And in some cases, they may never have entered the airline system at all, even though it was the... Um, airline that landed the passenger in Dublin or wherever, and that was where the bag didn't show up. So that that's Aer Lingus, first of all. They've brought that down from a peak a few weeks ago of 1800 and say that they're making progress. But I mean, I think quietly the airline and all these other businesses are cancelling that, look, a lot of these problems are going to persist for the next few weeks.
0: And what's the issue? I mean, why are they losing so many bags?
2: What's happening is it's mostly with connecting flights and it's mostly coming out of big busy hubs um, where there are labor shortages or you have lots of new staff working for ground handling companies that aren't very experienced and are maybe mixing things up. So what's happening is people are taking off from these hubs and their bags are not. And they are sometimes following on a later flight, sometimes not. Sometimes they are misdirected again. And uh, are passengers entitled to compensation in these cases? Yeah, if your bag doesn't show up or if it isn't returned to you in 21 days, you are entitled to compensation of up to 1,661 euro. Uh, I think I stand to be corrected on that, but I think that's the correct figure. And you can also claim on your insurance if you have it. And uh, some airlines will continue
0: to look for your bag and they will ultimately return it to you if they find it. Right. Okay. And uh, did we get any sense from the baggage handlers or from Merrill Linguist as to whether any compensation has actually been paid out yet? I was just doing a a back of the envelope calculation. I mean, it's it's probably the equivalent of 25 short haul aircraft, uh, you know, uh, each passenger checking in a bag and that bag going missing. I mean, it it is a huge number.
2: It is a huge number, but I think a lot of these are actually, um, a a lot of these are uh, from long haul flying rather than short haul flying. But I mean, the example you pick is a pretty good one. I haven't had any sense that they that the airlines are paying out compensation at this point, but I would say that they're getting close to it uh, in a lot of cases. if if you think about it, um one of the other companies Sky handling, they had two thousand eight hundred and ninety seven bags sitting in Dublin Airport at the moment on in a premises they have in Dublin airport at the moment. Um, and they say that there are the the rate at which new missing bags are coming in, um, is much faster than the rate at which they're getting them out, so at some point people are going to hit that that start hitting that twenty one day limit, and that 's the point where they're entitled to compensation
0: all right, and the bad news is that Erlingus you had the story earlier in the week, Erlingus have said that this is likely to continue for the remainder of the summer, and the key advice I suppose is not to bring not to put any valuables in your checked in luggage, bring them on board
2: yeah, the key advice is look your passport, your cash medication, anything of that nature. keep it with you. Um, I mean, I, I would always do that myself anyway. Um, and the the other thing is that it's worth bearing in mind that the problem is more focused on connecting flights, particularly one airline to another. Uh, so if you're flying point to point, you're less likely to encounter this.
0: All right. And sticking on the compensation theme, and finally, Barry, uh, we remember that uh, on May 29th, uh, I think it was around 1,400 passengers missed their flights at Dublin Airport. There was chaos that day huge uh, security delays uh, and the rocktas committee heard yesterday from uh, daa about the compensation that's been uh, given to date to those passengers yeah
2: uh, daa think they may they may have to pay up to a million now that's the figure that they're providing if you like they it, it it may not be precisely that at the end of the day they've worked through around 75% of the cases or they are close to settling with around 75% uh of the, the the passengers involved, and on that basis, that's what they're that, that's what they think the figure will be. And if you think about it like this, that's in the order of seven hundred it's it's close enough to seven hundred and fifty
0: euro per person. Barry Halloran, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Naomi O'Leary and Barry O'Halloran. The show was produced by Declan Conlon with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today, email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Ciarán Hancock. Until next time, take care.